Well, it's kind of a, kind of a big day for me today because something real special happened to me almost exactly on this day one year ago. Uh, one of the most significant events of my entire life for which I thank God every single day. This was the, the it was a year ago today I first met you and got to come here. And so um, you might think, what are you doing here anyway, Ken? What are you doing here? Uh, you know, and the, and the answer would be, well, I'm, I'm the pastor. And you might go, well, like, what do pastors do? Thank you. That's sweet. You might say, well, what, what do pastors do anyway? And I, I guess I would answer the question like this. Well, the pastors, they, they follow Jesus. That's what they do. And they help others follow Jesus. That's what they do. That's what we're doing here. That's what you were doing before I got here, right? That's, you say, I'm a Jesus follower, and Jesus followers, it's part of the deal. Help other people follow Jesus. That's, that's what we're doing here. And we want to follow him until he comes back or until we die. Speaking of which, Ken McClurg uh, went home to be with the Lord this week and uh, finished his Christian journey faithfully. And I've been hearing the stories of his life, and um, his funeral will be on Tuesday at 1 o'clock at Burden, and you can get details from the church office, but it, this happened too late in the week for it to be in the bulletin. Here's the idea. You find that you need Jesus, you throw yourself upon his mercy, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and then you become a follower of Jesus, and then you die faithful, like, like Ken did. That's the program here, right? And the church is nothing but a gathering of people who are Jesus followers. It's what, we, what we're doing is we want to become, we want, we want to make more and, and better disciples. That's really what it's about. Travis, that's what, what you guys are doing. That's what we're doing. Thank you for that incredible story and uh, insight into what God is doing in such a faraway place. That's just what we're doing here. That's what it's about. So it's really important that when people say, hey, I'm a Jesus follower, <clears throat> that you really are a Jesus follower, not a kind of a not very uh, real Jesus follower. And so we're in a series of messages based on the epistle of James that we're calling real faith because it's real important that people who say are, they are followers of Jesus really are followers of Jesus. And it's really powerful when people really do follow Jesus. Matter of fact, so far in our study of James, we've seen that real faith Real faith endures trials. People that are able to endure trials. Sunday, Creech is here on the second row. She's going through a deep trial. She lost her mother and was, uh, had her funeral this week. I said to her, you know, isn't it good to know the Lord? And she said, it sure is. When you go through a trial, you want to know the Lord. Real faith can endure trials like people who don't know the Lord just couldn't possibly endure trials. And we saw real faith also resist temptation. And who doesn't have to live in constant temptation? I think there are going to be hot dogs with onions afterward. This is always a temptation to me. Watch me closely. No more than two I like to say two hot dogs are worship, 
Three or more, idolatry. Real, <laughs> real faith resists temptation. We, we studied that real faith, people with real faith, their faith is visible and active. It's not just all interior. They, they do stuff. And real faith rejects prejudice. Real faith rejects pride and, and partiality, you know, treating some people better than others for what you can get out of them. That's not a real Jesus follower thing to do. People who really are followers of Jesus, they like love the people that Jesus loves. And they reject that pride and prejudice and partiality. And today, the big idea is, I'll tell you, and then if you want to, you can go to sleep until the picnic. Real faith works. Real faith works. Let's read the text. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I'm preaching from the, the English standard version of the Bible. I'll refer to another Bible version uh, later. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Well, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and set them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Now here's what we want to do with this text. A couple of things. First, we want to say, what is James not saying here? It's really kind of important that we clear the deck, if you will, and, and we, we, we answer the question that kind of hangs in the air, because when you read that passage, it sounds at first for all the world like maybe he and Paul would disagree about justification by faith. And this is no small matter. Justification by grace through faith alone is the heart of the Christian faith. This is no small matter. We if James, do James and Paul disagree here? And this is just an obvious question that has to be answered first. So first we're going to say, what is James not saying? And this is going to be important to you. I'll, I'll prove that later. And then we're going to, obviously, we need to spend a great deal of time, perhaps hours, right, on what is James saying? What is James saying? So what is he not saying? Let's resolve the apparent contradiction. 
when in the Bible you come to a spot where it seems like there's a contradiction, then you want to really pay attention to that. Because there's a deeper truth to be found. Remember what we say, mark that spot with an X and come back and dig because there's a treasure there. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. It certainly balances itself. There is this idea that theologians call the analogy of faith, that the Bible is best interpreted by other parts of the Bible, and the Bible is its own best commentary. And so when you read something that seems like, hmm, it seems like most of the Bible says that, but this part says this and it's different, then you want to try to resolve that apparent contradiction by asking yourself the question, how can these things both be true or balancing each other? Because we know that the Bible comes from God. And the Spirit uses men to inspire or to breathe out His Word. So there's a, there may be an apparent contradiction. Now, the three ways that we know that James is not saying... James is not saying that you are not saved by grace through faith alone. James is not saying that you are not saved by grace through faith alone. James is not contradicting what Paul says. And let me give you maybe three quick ways that we know this. Because first of all, if you read the historic narrative of what James believed about this, you can find it in Acts chapter 15. And there's this Jerusalem council, and and Gentiles are coming to faith, and they're trying to decide what they're going to ask them to do or not to do. And so the the faith has kind of been mostly dominated by Jewish people and and a mix of kind of Jewish, uh, uh, a holdover of Jewish ceremonial laws. And so they're doing doing missionary work, and then they're coming back to Jerusalem, and in the Jerusalem council, they're trying to decide what are they going to what are they going to ask of the Gentiles now? And, and the concern is, let's not, make, let's not put roadblocks in the way of others who are coming to the Lord. And it's kind of a shock to the Jewish people that others are coming to the Lord, but it's a very clear theme in the New Testament that that was the original idea, is that the Jews were chosen by God to be a blessing to the world and bring the Gentiles and other non-Jewish people to God. And if you're not Jewish right now, you should say, well, amen to that right? Thank the Lord for that, that this thing broke out of just the Jewish people and that they sent it to the world. And this is what the Jerusalem was a council was about. And in Acts 15, Peter says, we know that they are saved by grace through faith. And then immediately James says, and I agree with that. And you can study that in Acts 15. We know historically that James, and by the way, who else was there? Paul and Barnabas, they were all there. They were all in agreement that salvation was by grace through faith alone. So when James is talking about faith and works, you need to understand he's a man who is already on record that he agrees that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Second, the word justified, the word justified or justification, you know how words have different meanings or nuances of meaning? All words are this way. Most words are this way. But we understand this is true about justification. So when Paul uses the term justification there in Romans, he's using it in like a theological legal sense. We're made right with God before God legally. We're justified. Sometimes when, when, in, when, when Jesus taught frequently in the Bible, he would use the term justified in a different way, meaning you've validated or proven that what you said is true. 
Um, and this is the way that James uses it in the epistle that we're studying now. Uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke 16, 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. He wasn't talking about that legal justification that Paul was talking about. He's talking about showing, verifying, or proving something. So it is in Luke 10, 29, but he wanted to justify himself. That's the way. So we understand the word. So, so track with this. How do we know that James is not saying that you are not saved by grace through faith because number one historically he's on record that he believes that and number two he's using a different definition of justify than what paul used and and the third thing was this and you find it in this and you read that he gave two examples of justification by faith you notice that and they were people in the bible do you remember who they were abraham who was jewish and let's say rahab the harlot who was not and there's a really interesting thing there. That's where we're going to end today. But he uses this example of Abraham. Well, that's interesting that he does that. Because then Paul is talking about justification by grace through faith alone. Who does he use as an example? You guessed, Abraham. And, and then so, so Paul says Abraham was justified by faith. And, it was, and he refers to the incident where he believed that God would give him an heir. And says, and that when he believed, it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's the imputation idea. It was put onto his account. He was, he was given the righteousness of God through faith when he believed. Showed that he believed. Now, James, in this passage, he refers to that. But he says that Abraham was justified by faith at a different time. One is uh, Genesis 15. One is Genesis 22. He says, you're justified by faith. He says, we know that Abraham was justified by faith when he was willing to put his son on the altar. You understand, in this, that they use Abraham, and they use two different incidents. Paul is saying, Abraham was saved at this point. James is saying, Abraham showed that his faith was genuine at this point. And both of Paul and James talk about the imputation that the righteousness of god was put onto abraham's account by faith they both say that in both passages so that's just kind of a brief overview of that let me give you this just kind of in a in a quick kind of uh quick bullet points so that we can move to what james was saying but we have to get this kind of out of the way so paul is kind of addressing legalism when he talks about justification by faith he's in a sense he's addressing that saying you are saved by grace through faith alone. And James is kind of addressing license, and he says, when he says your, your faith isn't, isn't justifiable if you don't have works, Paul is, if you will, you know, comforting the disturbed, and James is disturbing the comfortable, like the old preacher said, right? Paul is using justified as a legal standing before God, and James is using justified in the sense of vindication or demonstration. I had a pastoral assistant, a brilliant awesome young man met met him for coffee the other day um he's going to be a college president someday i'm like remember me because i want to be an adjunct instructor when whatever college you're president of and i want to talk about you know whatever i want to talk about and i want to have a tweed jacket with patches and so forth anyway so i met with him he says um he used to be my pastoral intern assistant and i said well i tell you what i will do i will take time out of my work 
uh, to kind of you know, coach you if you do stuff for me that saves me time. So whenever Ben would do stuff for me that would save me time, I would say, Ben, you have justified your existence for one more day. And Ben just laughed at that because, of course, you don't have to justify your existence. It was just hyperbole, right? I'm like, hey, Ben, you've justified your existence. That's what James is saying. You've shown that your faith is genuine by your works. That's what he's saying. Again, in, in Paul is using justified as stand, legal standing before God. When James uses it, he's using it as vindication proof or demonstration. James, Romans 4.22 I'm reiterating now, Paul mentions that Abraham is justified by faith when he believes a promise, and that's the, the Genesis 15 passage. And in James chapter 2, in our text today, James mentions, mentions Abraham's faith as vindication or proof, that what, and that was the incident when he was willing to put his son on the altar in Genesis 22. Abraham was justified by faith when he believed God's promise of a son, Abraham's faith was justified before others by works when he placed him on the altar. Am I making sense? And so that's what James is saying. Paul says, when Abraham believed God or had faith, the righteousness of Christ was accounted to him, put onto his account. That's a wonderful doctrine right there. Hey, you're poor, but I'm going to make you rich immediately. I like that idea. It's like, I get when, when, when I was married to Christ, I had a bit of sin debt to put it mildly. But he had a wealth of righteousness, an infinite wealth of righteousness on his account. And his infinite wealth of righteousness swallowed up my awful debt of sin. That's why I sing about him every Sunday. That's why I love him so much. That's why I want my faith to be real. Paul mentions Abraham's faith was accounted, imputed to him as righteousness when he believed God. That's exactly what James says in the text, when he believed God. They agree, they do not disagree. I'm going on and on. Now here I am, James is not saying faith plus works equals salvation. James is saying faith equals salvation plus works and works. In other words, faith plus works equals salvation is wrong. It's faith equals salvation plus works that's what James is saying. Okay, so James is not contradicting Paul. And by the way, James wrote first, by the way, right? And James is not contradicting Jesus, who told the story of the publican. Remember the, the publican, the sinner, and the Pharisee? And, and, the, and the publican repents that day, and he sees the atoning sacrifice, and Jesus says he went down to his house that day, justified. Hallelujah! That's awesome! You can get justified in a moment. It's not a matter of like a merit program where you have to work out and get to the end of your life and say, well, now am I justified? No, Jesus already paid the price. And you, when you believe, are justified right with God uh, and legally right with God. This is really good news. Are you tracking with me? Are you awake? Hello? Think about this just for a minute. Ed was as uh, a friend of mine. We did the funeral there, and we were talking about Ed has kind of a connection with the Tigers. He met his wife there. We met him through the Tigers. And we were talking about this at the funeral, and I said, imagine that Ed, somebody in the room actually did this, Ed. I don't know if you knew this. Somebody in the room actually did this. But let's imagine that Ed says, I'm gonna, I want you to go to a Tigers game with me. And, and let's say he says, and I have nice tickets, and I want you to, I'll meet you at the Tiger. Comerica Park, keep your money. It's no good with me, Ken. I'm buying. And I go, okay, Ed. And I come down, and he hands me the ticket, and the face value is like $97. It's right behind home plate. 
I'm like, hold on, I need to go to the ATM machine because I got to pay you for this. That's not cool, right? Ed is like, Ken, I, I, I love you. You're my friend. I, I wanted to give you the, oh no, I'm not taking the gift. I don't take stuff I haven't earned. You know where that analogy breaks down? You can't go to an ATM machine and get enough money out to pay for your sin. You can't do anything to pay for the vast, you know, debt of sin. But there he stands. Will you receive the gift of eternal life? This is, of course, what Paul said. This is what James said. This is what Jesus said. They all agree. James is not saying salvation is faith through works. James is saying it's salvation that works. Whenever I preach, I need to give credit to all the people that I used as a sounding board all week because I do that. So my messages are the product of the other pastors, lots of times maybe Leo, uh, Linda Parsons, uh, whoever's hanging out that I can get to listen to me during the week, and they give me feedback. And Nate York told me that. One of his professors said, James is not saying salvation is faith through works. James is saying salvation is faith that works. I thought that was really good. And Calvin always has good things to say. Not Calvin and Hobbes, but John, Calvin, well, both of them are profound. Faith alone justifies, he said, but the faith that justifies is what? It's never alone. And the New Living Translation, it tra- translates it this way, and it's kind of useful from verse 21 on. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God? So he takes the justified word and he, you tra- they translate it, shown to be right, shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions, they worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. If you don't know that story, it's in the Bible. You should read it. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So that's what James wasn't saying. We got that out of the way. Now let's talk about, James would want us to say, hey, Ken, are you going to get to telling them what I did say? Like, yes, James. He's saying faith without works is dead. He's saying faith without works is demonic. He actually says this. He's saying faith without works is dumb. It's foolish. And faith without works is useless. In other words, if you say you have faith and you don't have works, you are, you are not genuinely saved. You are kidding yourself. This is a serious matter. And James is a pastor and pastors care about this stuff. How sad would it be for a person to come and do a bunch of religious things and even know all kinds of doctrines and and affirm them or even be frightened about them like the demons and yet not embrace them and have the miracle of genuine faith happen with them. How sad would that be? Faith without works is dead. It's kind of like it's all mouth. Look in the text in James chapter 2. And notice there in, in verse 17. And it says, uh, this is the brother who says, somebody's health uh, doesn't have clothing and they don't have food. And we say, be warmed and fed, but you don't do anything for them. And he says, that's dead faith. And then he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone, notice the word next, is says, says, 
says, talk, 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 right? But it doesn't have words. Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in food, and one of you says to him, talk, 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 go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what's good? So also faith by itself doesn't have works, is dead. Verse 18, if, but someone will say, you notice, people whose faith isn't real are, are frequently talking a lot, but, but not actually doing. It's just full of talk. This we want to make sure that our faith is more than just our, our mouth, right? And then, and then I said faith without works is demonic, and, and, I, and I'm basing that there on verse 19 where it says, oh, you say you believe there's one God. Well, the demons agree with you, and they also tremble, implying genuine faith is more than just knowing stuff. It's more than just saying stuff. It's more than just knowing stuff. And I, I've been around a lot of people who know a lot of stuff, and all of us have done this. How many of you have done all the stuff you know? The conviction of silence, the silence of conviction should sweep across the group today, right? Wow, I know so much more than I have done. But if you have genuine faith, there is some do, not just know. And, and sometimes people substitute knowing for doing. They can, you know, they can beat you with a sword drill, or they can, they can tie you in knots in doctrine, or they, they know all the Bible stories, and, and yet, let's say, you watch their life and you go, I don't want to be like them. They're not very much like Jesus. And yes, some other brother might not really even know that much, but what he knows, he does by the power of the Spirit. And you're like, I like that. I'd like to be like him. Faith without works is demonic. Faith without works is foolish. That's where in verse 20, do you want to be shown? Pastor James says, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. And there you have those two. Faith without works is dead, is demonic. It's foolish, it's dumb, it's also worthless. So I, I'm preaching at camp last week, and I have two of my grandsons with me, and I'm in preaching through Colossians chapter 1. And I get to this section where it's talking about how Jesus is everything, and it's a soaring, beautiful text. And, and it has this little caveat on the end, verse 21 and you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister little Kyle, my grandson, is 11, and he comes back to my cabin, and he kneels by my bed, and he says that part that you read about, like, if, does that mean you can, like, be saved, but you don't, but then you're not saved later? I said, that's a really good question, and it's funny you should ask me, because when I went to camp at eight years old, that's the question I kept asking my my counselor if salvation is a gift of god by grace through faith alone it's not something that we earned it's not something we keep by our good works but the scriptures do teach that they're that the saints who are genuinely saints they persevere if you will a proof that your faith is genuine is that you persevere there are 
the apostate in the Bible is the person who says he believes he's accounted, he or she is counted among the Christians, and they, they seem Christian for a while, then they go away. And First John, John says in First John 2, 18, 19, he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. I, I, and so little, little Kyle is, is kneeling by my bed, and his 11-year-old eyes are searching mine, and he's asking a good question of his soul. And he says to me then, he's a bright lad, he says to me, so how do you know, because he caught my word genuinely saved. And he says, so then how do you know when you're genuinely saved. Now, here's, this is what James is saying. Here's, here's how you know. Now, sometimes people will say, well, you go get the card you filled out when you went forward at the evangelistic rally, and you point where you wrote it down. Some would say, call mama. She will tell you you're saved. Well, hey, mom, tell me when I got saved. Now, these are wonderful things. I'm not going to attack your mother in church, but they're not in the Bible, right? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible is very clear about what to do to discover whether or not you are genuinely saved. This is important because you can know about salvation and you could go to hell, right? You can fear God and, and you could go to hell. The demons believe and tremble. They're going to spend eternity in hell. And you don't want to be with them. Separated from our loving God. This is a serious matter that you are genuinely saved. How do you know? Well, you have a Bible in your lap you can rifle through your Bible, and you can find the promises of God, and you can claim the promises of God. You know you're saved when what you believe corresponds with the Bible, and there's evidence in your life that you've gone over on God's side against your sin. You still sin, but you don't have the same disposition toward your sin you used to have. You, you sin less frequently, with less intensity, and with more conviction. There's a difference. There's a change. And James put it, puts it really simply. Without works, faith is dead. There's going to be some evidence in your life. If a miracle happened in your life that changed you inside out, there ought to be some evidence of that. You love people you didn't love before. You're, you, you are humbled with conviction when people say something to you that you need to change. You listen to them. You are, uh, Jesus is your Lord, and you love what he loves and you hate what he hates you're grieved over the things that grieve him there's a miracle that's happening you james says it's like this faith without works it's useless demonic dead foolish farmer you've heard me say the old farmer they ask him if he was a christian he says he writes names down and gives him a piece of paper and he says these are my neighbors go ask them See what I'm saying? He's justified by Jesus, but he's James justified by his neighbors. Right? When I, I, when I was hoping to come here, I gave the pulpit committee the names and numbers of my neighbors. Then I paid my neighbors a lot of money <laughs> to say nice things. That's not true. I'm just kidding. Uh, just lying to you here. Uh, and, my, and, and I remember that Linda uh, Parsons was on the poll committee, called my neighbor Michael, and she says, well, we got a good report that none of Mike's tools are in your garage. <laughs> and I laughed because I thought, well, his tools wouldn't be in my garage anyway because if I lean on somebody to help me, they bring their tools and they take them home when they're done because I don't know what to do with tools anyway. <laughs> anyway, I was, it, I was taking my wife to Lansing to Hobby Lobby. 
And I like to go in Hobby Lobby, but I had some reading I wanted to do, so I waited in the car. And I was looked up and I saw a man stumbling across the parking lot with his pants down, obviously in a terrible distress, overdosed on drugs. And I wasn't sure what to do. I thought, I, I couldn't administer the kind of first aid he needs. So I called 911 right away. They told me, well, you're in the Hobby Lobby parking lot. Yes, we've already heard about him. We have an ambulance on the way. So I thought, well, if I know what to do, I'll get out of the car, but I, but I didn't. I don't want to say I was afraid. It was a little awkward, so I, I, I waited in my car for a while, and I just watched this poor guy as he couldn't walk, and he stumbled and he went down into a little grassy spot. He couldn't even pull his pants up. He was laying there, and I was watching him, and then after a while, I saw people come up to him, and they showed concern. Two couples. I stayed in my car, and I watched these two people, these two couples, show this compassion to this messed up guy. And when I was watching that, something touched me deeply. Like, they, you know, I stayed in my car, but they went and they got near him and they talked to him and they weren't going anywhere until the ambulance got there. And it touched my heart deeply. And I, I wondered a lot, should I have gotten out of my car? Here's what James is saying. James is saying, when your Christianity just sits in the car, It's not impressing anybody, but when it gets out of the car and does something, that's when the world stops and your hypocrite meter needle goes off, right? Second example, though, was Rahab. And you got to ask, why would he use Rahab? Because Rahab was a, well, you know, what? What we call Rahab? The harlot. I always wondered about that. Like, why'd they call Rahab? She's saved, and they keep calling her a harlot. It just doesn't seem very nice, right? Could you just say Rahab, you know, and then you could, like, behind your brother, you know. <laughs> Rahab the harlot. I mean, read about in Hebrews. It's like, Rahab the harlot. Like, I have a theory about this. <laughs> of course, I'm going to share it with you. James was smart. Holy Spirit, really smart. They knew what they were doing when they put this in there. Here's Abraham. All the Jewish people are going, yeah, Abraham. Oh, and then there's that Rahab who's not Jewish and not even a very nice Gentile. She's a, she's a harlot. She's a prostitute. Oh, and she was justified by faith. Can I get an amen from the church right there? Okay, so like if you're a, you're a harlot and you're justified by faith and you make the faith hall of fame, that's good news for all of us. That's, that ought to just kind of inspire Jesus following people. Hey, maybe there would be some people that are broken by sin out there that also could make, you know, faith's hall of fame, that could also find themselves a whole new life different than they had before. James, Pastor James, wants the people to know that just like Abraham was justified by faith, Rahab was justified by faith. He, want, he, he uses Rahab the harlot to show the depth of the grace of God, to remind us that we're not saved by works, to illustrate that real faith works, and to encourage Jews to welcome Gentiles, and to encourage Gentiles to turn to God. In Acts 26, 20, thank you, Nate York, again, he, he pointed this out to me, that we were talking about Gentiles coming to God, and they said they repent, they turn to God, and they perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's exactly what James was saying. And he was talking about Gentiles. He was making the point there that God, you, you ever heard that, uh, 
ragamuffin thing, the ragamuffin thing. There's a fellow named Brennan Manning, and uh, he wrote a book, and in the book he's talking about a young girl, a valley girl type girl that was, didn't understand about Jesus, and he says to her, read the book of Luke. It tells the story of Jesus. So the girl reads the book of Luke, and here's how the story goes. She comes back, and she says, wow, like Jesus had this intense thing for ragamuffins, didn't he? That's why Rahab is here, so that God's people don't ever, you know, get all cleaned up on Sunday and forget that God has an intense thing for ragamuffins or that we were once pretty rough around the edges ourselves. That we would never forget Jackson, Michigan is a wonderful place full of ragamuffins. And they don't even know. And and what would happen if there was a group of people who were so genuine, so sincere in their faith that that when the ragamuffins met them, their hypocrite meter didn't go off. Because, you know, ragamuffins have a really, really acute hypocrite meter. You know this, right? Because they know they have messed up. So they are really keen on noticing any hypocrisy. And that's why real faith is so important, so that we're genuinely saved and so that we have so that we can make more and better disciples, so that we can go and find people who don't know the Lord yet, who are broken, who are hurting, who are lost, who don't have a chance of ever escaping hell, and we can help them, and we can find them. These are the two great dangers to avoid. One is to believe that you can earn your salvation by works, and the other is to believe that you have salvation, but, but you don't have works. When the truth really drops into your heart, here. I think it just changes your life. I heard about a guy named Bill who had been raised around Christian stuff and knew it to be true but hadn't so experienced it yet. And he had a friend. He lived in Kalamazoo and he had a friend that was in Chicago. And his friend in Chicago was going to go to the mission field. So he said, well, out of a sense of duty and obligation, I mean, after all, I'm a Christian. I should go and listen to his talk about missions. And he says, uh, he's kind of frugal, so he decides he's only going to take $20 with him in case that he's the, this missionary has this kind of like sob story that makes him sad. He doesn't want to give too much money. So he goes and he listens to his friend, and sure enough, when his friend is done, he empties his wallet, gives him everything he's got, gives him the $20 in his wallet. And then he gets back on the toll road, and he thinks to himself, how am I going to get home because I don't have any money now? And he thinks, I'm a fool. I gave away my last $20, and now I don't have toll to get home. So he's a young guy, and he just says, okay, God, I don't have any money to get home. Can you help me? He gets to the toll booth, and the lady says something to him he's never heard before. You can go ahead. The guy in front of you just paid your way. So Bill drives through, and then he drives his car off the side of the road, and he bows his head, and he starts to weep. He says for the first time he realizes he serves a living God. That's what happens when your faith is real, and it starts acting. It's when we act on the impulses of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in a needy world, that's then that we realize that our faith is real, and it's really then that we realize that God is real. My, my son told me, he knows I have an ear for stories of redemption, and he says to me, the rural Bible mission, missionary, they share a duplex. He said to her, Debbie Price is her name. He said, um, how did you come to know the Lord? 
Debbie says, well, our family was all pagans. We were all pagans far from God. We moved to St. John's, Michigan. And my dad bought a house. He worked really hard. He was irreligious. (laughs) And he discovered that there was a plumbing failure and that he was going to have to hire somebody with a backhoe to dig out to the road. But he would never have the money to do that. And he worked really hard, so when he got off work, he came home, he started with a shovel just digging through his front yard. This huge job. A stranger came along and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I I should be hiring a backhoe, but I don't have the money, and i got to dig out to the road. Next day, when he got home from work, the the ditch was, was dug halfway out to the road. He said, what happened? He said, that guy, that stranger came back the next day he says who are you and why are you doing this and the guy says well i'm a pastor they dig together and on sunday this irreligious man is putting a suit on and telling his family we're going to go to church and the family's like why are we going to go to church he said because if that pastor can dig a ditch for me and I can go and listen to him talk. Don't you just love stories like that? Now, now, what about a group this size that in the power of the Holy Spirit prayed for people who had needs and asked God to give them ways to love them, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, the impulse of the Holy Spirit would love them? Now, what would just happen? That would be, that would be interesting. The Lord, I thank you for your word My goodness, it really is like a mirror that just shows who we are. And it's so inspiring to read it and realize what you expect of us and how you empower us to meet those expectations. We want to be Jesus people, Jesus followers, and gather other Jesus followers and help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.